0: We salute the work you are doing and your dedication to helping your loved one find a way through. And now, Coming Up for Air.
1: Hi, everyone. This is Laurie McDougall back on Coming Up for Air. I am back here, sitting here, discussing some incredible topics that we'd like to bring to everyone today. But I'm sitting here talking with Kayla Solomon. Hi, Kayla. How are you?
2: Hi, Laurie. Good.
1: And Dominique Simone Levine, the creator of the Allies in Recovery website. Good morning, Dominique. Good morning, everyone. We have, I think, what is a really hot topic to discuss today. And it's really about treatment, what our loved ones are experiencing in treatment, and also how treatment can affect the family. And I think we're talking about a pretty controversial topic it's kind of about something that I heard uh, Dr. Andrew Tatarsky speak about. He calls it treatment trauma. And Dominique, I think you have a different name or something you're calling it.
0: I'm just calling it substance use disorder treatment and the family. So how that treatment affects the family, how the family can affect that treatment and the importance of, of the family as part of the substance use disorder treatment. Okay. So in every way, looking at the boundaries and look at confidentiality and privacy, and can we build something that works better for the family than what we currently have?
1: And how how the topic came up, how we started discussing this was, I've come across a couple of families that have struggled with treatment, encouraging families to do a couple of things. The first thing is, is signing some kind of a contract that if their loved one during any part of the process of their treatment and recovery, so it could be 30 days of treatment. It also could be they're in a recovery home, but being connected to this particular treatment, treatment facility, or the program that they have, that if their loved one has a recurrence, that the family member is going to cut off ties to them. I've heard it multiple times where they've had to sign a contract. I've also heard of families where they were asked to write a letter really really outlining that they are going to cut off everything, that they're not going to give them they're not going to support them, they're not going to give them things anymore and just these really disparaging letters that they're going to send to their loved one while their loved one is in treatment. And this is kind of how we got onto this subject. And we can we can throw in some some more examples of that. But I was saying how this is really counter counter counterintuitive. It's really it's something that I struggle with, because in craft, that's not what we're telling families, right? We're telling them, stay connected, do not disconnect. And actually, we talk about substance use disorder, like you've heard the term, the opposite of substance use disorder is connection. So how is cutting off this connection a good thing? I don't think it is. And oftentimes when families come to me with this, I feel like um, I'm helping them pick up the pieces and having to have to rebuild a relationship with their loved one because the reaction of the loved one is not very good. And I'm sure they're feeling shamed. They're feeling blamed. All of the things that we're really trying to change in craft is that, no, we want to build a relationship and we want you to stay connected in a way that you can be compassionate and caring and still hold to your healthy boundaries.
2: And I think that's the key, because what you're describing is what I would consider an interventionist model, which is. If you don't go to treatment, then the following things are gonna happen. And often it's about cutting off connection, cutting off money, cutting off something in order to push the person to get into treatment. That's the frame of intervention. The other thing is that historically, treatment has been based on a punitive punishing model, which is based on, we're gonna break this person down because clearly what they've built is dysfunctional. And like Jenga, we're gonna take it apart and basically collapse it to rubble, and then we will be building this person back up from scratch, which is a healthier way. And And when you talked about when you started with this treatment trauma, often what happens with treatment trauma is this attempt to break somebody down is you're trying to break down somebody who's already filled with shame and low self-esteem. So it feels like, you see, I'm not worth it. The hopelessness gets bigger, the worthlessness gets bigger. So you're basically, taking down somebody who's already broken down and it, it's not a good model for this. So so what craft is about and what differentiates our model from this breaking down model and punitive model is we're working on connection and building. So instead of waiting for somebody to be like down to rubble, we're trying to build people up while they're in any kind of function. And, and I feel like what we're talking about is... I th- I'm pretty sure you mentioned this, the boundaries, because there's two things that happen. One is that there's the boundaries that we create with our loved ones. You know, what are you willing to accept and what are you not willing to accept? And it's not about you're cutting them off. It's about what what are you OK with? and And all the boundary work is what feels acceptable to you and what feels like it's pushing you to a point where it's intolerable or you're not okay. And if you're not okay, you get to create a boundary, but we like to communicate it in a much more kind, gentle, open way. And as I like to say, based on your choices, I will be making choices, which is different from if you do this, this is going to happen. It's different.
1: The thing that also I think about this all the time is people are telling family members all the time, oh, you can't control the illness. You can't control it. You can't control it. You can't control it. And those words, what that says to me is, so you need to stop being manipulative because that's what happens when you're trying to control something and control the outcome and determine how things are going to go. It's really about me trying to manipulate the situation so I can get out of it what I want, right? So I'm going to go ahead and try and control the situation so that my loved one will stop using with good intentions. But what amazes me is that That's what everybody is telling the family member. The whole community treatment is like, you can't control it. And they're very forceful. So you need to separate, you need to split apart. But to me, it's like, but then you want to take it over. And by doing these things, you want to manipulate and control the person. Does that make sense? Because now you want to say if you don't do things the way we're telling you you have to do it and you have to do it exactly the way we're telling you that's the treatment facility or whatever treatment program it is then we're just going to cut you off if you don't do it we're we're just going to cut you off so to me it's like well but wait a minute
0: isn't that what we're all trying to learn which is to accept each other, be with each other and, and create healthy boundaries and connection with one another. And the treatment facility thinks it's the best way of doing that is cutting off the family. On both ends, coming in the door when your loved one is being admitted, all of a sudden rules, HIPAA, federal regulations, everything comes into play to block your ability to participate in the admissions process and in the information that's gathered in an assessment of how you're doing and what your needs are gonna be through the process, that would be very nice, okay, that would be extra. But at the other end, what happens is, and I just had this happen uh, seven, eight months ago with a young couple and they were told basically if he did not step down from their residential program to their sober living program, he would no longer be able to access the regular treatments because both he and his wife wanted him to come home to the Boston area at where he had resources and you know, was gonna inevitably be back there setting up community. She wrote us to say, I don't know what to do. I, I'm feeling so guilty. I can't even go to work anymore because he's home. And we didn't do what they said. And they said he would relapse if he came home. And so she's living in terror from exactly what, what this good doctor is saying, which was a traumatic event for her to have her husband come home from treatment. Eight months later, I happen to run into somebody who knows the mother-in-law, and they're doing very well. They're doing very well. Who's to say? Who's to say? It's not where you are. It's what you're willing to accept new into your life to try and create a little bit healthier an outlook, a few more things that are able to calm your anxiety that don't include drugs or drinking, a little bit of something that gets your your serotonin going, so, you, you know, a little, you know, a dog walk, uh, maybe playing with a dog in the park. Anything, 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 right? We're not looking for, for a whole lot, but it is connected and it is healthy for them. And so it's all these, these sort of continuums, sick, you know, diseased, not diseased, ill, well, not recovered recovered and instead it's it's a spectrum right and and we're all going to land where we're going to land given the best options that can be provided us that's the only thing i say as somebody informally with with a pretty severe addiction problem is i love folks who gave me options here you go when you're ready boom We've got Hazelton opened up. We can do this for third. In the days where it was 28, de- 28 day detox treatment programs, I was actually going to go away to treatment. Turned out to be 15 years before I ever got really sober, right? Insurance fell apart and all of it fell apart, but it was, it was people giving me options that was giving me the courage to even consider
2: it. When you were ready.
1: And I have a major problem with treatment Telling someone, and this did happen with my son as well, where he was told that if he left, he would relapse. And we were told that as well. And I'm like, one, that is such a horrible thing to be telling somebody, especially when you're struggling with all of this stuff and you're in early recovery. And I remember all I could think of was, oh, what is it when you you make a prediction come true? Oh, you're basically
2: planting the seed.
1: Yeah, they're planting the seed. They're telling him he's going to relapse. Like, what are you doing? And you don't know that. But what an awful thing to be telling someone. And then the other thing that really bothers me is the treatment facility cutting someone off when they have a recurrence. Because my thoughts are they're exhibiting symptoms of an illness, <laughs> the exact nature of the illness. And now you're going to cut them off from treatment. No, let's not cut them off. Even if you refer them somewhere else or, you know, put them in a different path or try and find something that that person can go ahead and grab a hold of that might move them in a, in a more positive direction, but don't cut them off.
0: In defense of treatment and my experience Evaluating treatment programs for 25 years in the Northeast. Most programs do a very good job if somebody ends up active in, in their home, in their, in their residential environment, especially. They move them into more intensive levels of care. I've seen that get very sloppy with the pandemic because the more intensive levels of care just don't exist. And so people are being thrown out, literally out into the cold if they end up using in a, in a program that has a, you know, zero use policy or a one or two strike policy. I mean, everything, you know, programs have policies and, and all the best, everybody has the best intentions going into this, right? But then what happens if somebody uses is pretty frightening for them and for the family because they get let go, the whole thing can crumble, all the steps that you had in place can disappear by making them homeless again. So that unstable housing is such a reoccurring problem for for folks trying to uh, to stay abstinent. It, it really is a housing first is the solution.
2: Well, and I think that the theme of what we're talking about is boundaries versus rigidity, because you can have good boundaries even if you're in a program. And I've worked in all levels of care, including residential and people relapse. And so I've started to look at things differently, especially since we're all modifying what recovery means. And if somebody relapses, to me, it is an indication that something is going on. And I know lots of substance abuse therapists that will not see people who are using, which I think is ridiculous because that makes no sense to me. It's kind of like, you know, if somebody's angry, you can't see them because they're too angry. That's where the work is. So I feel like if somebody is relapsing, if there's something that's not working, that's when it's a chance for the treatment to dig in and go further with it. It's like, what happened? How do you take it apart? All of this work is about looking at things from a different angle and taking it apart differently. It's kind of like we were talking about in the group that, you know, people like, well, I told my son that if he uses again, then he can't stay. And what we started to talk about is what's his behavior? You know, what is his behavior? Is he cooperating? Is he communicating? Is he moving forward? Is he engaging with you? And if if that's still happening, that's an opportunity. So I feel like we need to look at all of this in terms of opportunity, not crisis, because if somebody is engaged with you, then keep going, keep going. It's when they lock you out and are acting terrible every day and, the, and they're escalating and things are getting really bad. That's when there's a different intervention necessary. But if somebody is engaging with you and you could see progress, focus on the progress because that's the opportunity. The, and certainly when I was working very loosely with the residential program, when we, we would watch for relapses and that's essential, but kicking people out immediately did not always make sense. If they're bringing stuff in, if they're trying to get other people high, if they're using blatantly and showing everybody, then we have a problem because the other people are are at risk. But if you know that they're relapsing because they have dirty urines, there's still opportunity to do the work. And I feel like if we could just all look at this in terms of how do you lean in? How do you work with the person? How do you use it as an opportunity to connect? It changes how you see things.
0: And only if the system is integrated sufficiently that the residential program has a contract to do the clinical work of digging in with their resident at the moment of relapse and has the the, the staff power to really provide that clinical support. Families will tell you, it's like that person is two weeks away across town on a bus. And so for now, he's out until he can meet up with his therapist who then has to write some letter. You step off the curb, you're back on this highway of being literally in the street. And families end up being the case manager of that. They have to understand the treatment system. They have to understand how the releases work and what you can do to get that treatment system to work with you, as such as get your loved one to sign a release that says the treatment program will talk to you and on what level. Your loved one does not have to agree to let you, the family, know every detail of his therapy, but you might be able to agree that you can have whether or not he's going to therapy. So there are different levels of release information that you can have. It's the family and the system. And the two only meet in this haphazard way right now. And Kraft in every way is involved in trying to soften the edges of this, including, I think, doing a good job of helping our families evaluate whether they can have their loved one home or not. We've spoken a lot in recent months of, you know, them leaving treatment and being able to come home. And I think what we might do is talk a little more about when they can't come home for one reason or another, won't come home, can't come home, or don't have a home, because that puts in play a scary system for the family to have to interact with professionals who don't return calls, community services that are overwhelmed, that sort of thing.
1: It's a huge problem right now. In particular, I mean, it was a problem before, but now it's just like tenfold a problem. I don't know in the past year of one person that's been accepted into treatment the day that they went to the emergency room. There Almost always sent home four hours later and they're put on a waiting list and it could be up to a month before they're getting into.
0: You can get medication assisted treatment same day, walk into an urgent care in, in Maine and come out or New Hampshire it was I was following this family and walk out with an appointment four hours later to a, a Suboxone clinic. So for medication assisted treatment, that seems to be leading all treatments right now. Again, we're talking pretty much for opioids, um, not so much for alcohol, which we should be pushing more because there are some effective treatments like naltrexone for, for alcohol.
1: No, no, I hear you, I hear you. But there's also, there's no beds. And there are people that would like to go in and stay and feel they need a higher level of treatment and there's no beds. Great, right, medication first. You can get something and start moving in in a forward direction, but there are lots of people that would like to go into uh, like a thirty day treatment and are just in total despair when they get turned away at the emergency room and uh, they can't find that. And the families are in despair too because they have no idea what to do or how to help. And so I agree, it's it's a major it's a major major problem, but it's also It's a bit of an issue on the other side of it too, but also Kayla, you know what, can you speak a little bit more on, so Dominique kind of brought this up, you spoke a little bit about it, families being in contact, like, I think it can be very confusing of what level of communication the family should have with like clinicians and with the treatment facility. So Dominique is talking about collaborating and working with the family, and which I think is a is a really positive thing to do. but it also can be a bit of a balancing act, right? Because the family wants to really get in there and uh, and really be a part of absolutely everything. And that might not be the best, and it can be very confusing for the family. Can you talk about it a little bit, Kayla?
2: Yeah, I guess I can only talk about what I do and what I believe in because everybody does it differently. But I am happy to get information from families. I'm happy for people to send me emails. And I don't really like talking to people because that's where the boundary can get a little bit crossed. But if you send me an email telling me what you're seeing and what you're concerned about, I will not respond to you. But I'm grateful for the information because that will I could put it out there in a way that the person doesn't know that I'm communicating with you, but I'm going to be asking different questions. The problem that I have with some people is I don't know if other clinicians say, well, your mother called me and told me this, because if they do, then that's a disaster. So there has to be an agreement that this is just information that could be used without necessarily mentioning your name. So you need to be really clear that you don't want that used because you have to have skilled clinician asking questions without saying your mother told me because it's always relevant information. So I don't feel bad saying, you know, well, you know, how was it when you went to that party or when's the last time, you know, you have struggled with this? I could find ways to bring it up without ever, ever letting on that. I know what's going on. The only difference is that sometimes if somebody says no, I'll be a little bit more relentless about asking. And I'll pick up clues where I could use that about why this is why I'm asking, but I will not be in contact with the family and giving them information about what's going on. The only thing that I have done, if there's an agreement with the person, is talk to the family about what they could be doing and how they could be acting differently.
0: And that's where I think actually the missing link is to all of this. And it happens to be allies in recovery again, but If only the family at at admission were given a track of Allies in Recovery to understand what their loved one just is going through, what they just walked into, what the family role can look like, um, what's appropriate, inappropriate in treatment, the sorts of things that we talk about, then you have a family member who's on course to be a better support during, after, and hopefully again informed after as to what they need, what part they're gonna play in helping set up the community treatments that may be needed back at the home front or housing help. Uh, So there's a great role here to allow the family a a small parallel track when their loved one is entering treatment to understand. And I I do think CRAFT is getting this kind of use in some treatment programs Especially because for, the, for those of you professionals who are listening to this, because once your loved one is in treatment, then the work of CRAFT is reimbursable by insurance because the IP is in treatment. Is that right? I didn't even know that. Right. So it makes sense to put CRAFT in the treatment programs. And by far, it's, it's the easiest, most well-studied, supportive role you can, you can create for your, your client the person with addiction in your treatment center is to have this informed empowered family member that they can they can continue on life with so there's a there's a lot that can be done i think on the soft edges of this without bumping into too much of the privacy issues that you've been talking about
1: So in today's conversation, Kayla, Dominique, and I started out with a discussion on older concepts that treatment and professionals ask of family members that conflict with more up-to-date evidence-based suggestions, like whether to stay connected with a loved one if they are not compliant with recommendations of a program. The conversation just naturally flowed into another topic, so we ended up with a very long recording we decided to split it into two episodes. So we are going to end this episode here and continue with the second half of the conversation next week. Thank you for listening and tune in next time for the conclusion of our discussion.